We'd like to welcome all those by way of television today and wish you a very happy Easter. It's only within the United States that people oftentimes say happy Easter. In every other area of the world, it's Christ the Lord is risen. And in response is Christ the Lord is risen indeed. And this is somewhat of a unique setting because um, we have to follow the guidelines of the government a little bit. We're under... Um, 10 people, but we know that there's thousands and millions of you listening by way of radio and television, and we want to make it possible that you have an Easter service. And I just want to um, thank my staff, um, Gary Gross and Robin Larson and Kathy and Marie and Tina and Mike and Claris for coming. I think I didn't leave anybody out, did I? This morning we wanted to bring music to your ears. Um, by way of radio and by way of television. And we're going to just kind of try to cut and paste and make this as possible. And I just want to thank the radio and television stations that make this possible. And they're very supportive of us. We're living in an unprecedented times where um, technology is, we can use it to our advantage. And I'm just kind of learning. I'm just kind of following along with what's going on in the, the world. And I don't want to rehash the facts of of what the news media is telling you, but I want to bring you the hope that the gospel brings. So let us open in a word of prayer as we invoke the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, as we celebrate this holiday, holy time during this most unusual season of sheltering, sheltering at home, I thought it might be useful to provide a little insight into the huh, this holy day from a very messianic perspective. There are, there are four spring feasts and all of them can be found in Leviticus chapter 3. Yes, that's right. Leviticus chapter 3. First, there's the Passover where the blood of the lamb was put on the doorposts. And then secondly, there was the feast of the unleavened bread, that time of communion. Father, also there was the first fruits that we're celebrating today, today the first fruits the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then the festival of weeks, the seven weeks after the first fruits. That first Passover, which in many ways is used by scripture as a typology, a typology of the Messiah and the Messiah's ministry on earth. Yeshua, Yeshua, Jesus, is our Passover lamb, who freed us from the slavery and bondage to sin by the shedding of his blood placed on the doorposts of our hearts. Just as the first Passover, lambs freed us from slavery and the bondage to Pharaoh by the placing of blood with hyssop on the doorposts of our ancestors' houses. Today, O oh Lord, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first fruits, is that third spring feast. This is a very significant feast for the followers of Yeshua, Jesus, and it is deeply embedded in the New Testament teachings. The resurrection of Yeshua, Jesus, from the dead was a direct prophetic fulfillment of this biblical feast, and as such, it could be deemed the most significant of the spring feasts for believers in Jesus, Yeshua. Imagine if God only freed my people from slavery to the Egyptians and then allowed them to wander in the wilderness, but never brought them into the promised land. This would be like a Messiah fulfilling the first two spring feasts, but not fulfilling the third and significant one of provision. If the Messiah, Jesus, was not raised from the dead, then our faith is worthless. We are, we are still in our sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all most to be pitied, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Oddly enough, in many ways, this feast is very insignificant in Jewish circles because it was a harvest feast that required an offering to be brought to the temple. And with no temple, this feast is impossible to fulfill since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. 
And until that sad day in history, the Feast of First Fruits, which we observe today as the resurrection, was celebrated on a Sunday following Passover. And that's why we do not worship on the regular Sabbath, which was Thursday, which was Friday, or which was Saturday, but we worship on the first day of the week, Sunday, in accordance with the traditions of the priestly set called the Sadducees who ruled the temple in Jerusalem. The celebration of Easter, the Resurrection Sunday, coincides directly with the Feast of the First Fruits. This is no accident, but rather an intentional choice by the early church leaders. This feast had an interesting interaction prescribed in Deuteronomy 26. So as we go on to worship and, and sing the mighty hymns of God today, we ask, O oh Lord, that your blessing would be upon those by way of television that join us by way of radio. We pray now in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your presence. In Jesus' precious name, amen. amen. At this time, we turn to our first hymn. service today, Easter, and then we're going to be doing a, a taping for a, a second service that she's going to be playing the fourth, and then I'm going to dismiss anybody that needs to, to leave, and after that fourth hymn, I'm going to spend a little more time talking about the, the resurrection. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 4, as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. As I mentioned earlier, the United States is one of the very few countries in which the customary Easter greeting contains no reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Throughout the Greek-speaking world, for example, Christians address one another in the same Easter salutation that rang through the early church, Christus Anasidi, Christ is risen, and with an ancient response, Alito Sate, he is risen, truly risen indeed. And in the Latin church of the first century, the Easter greeting was Vitae, he lives, and the reply was Vertia Vitae, he lives indeed. And in the Spanish lands, Christians would say, Christos Vidiae. Or in German believers, no matter to which church they may belong, they would salute one another with a very exalted joy. And the reply would be, Even in Russian, where communist slogans have not altogether been banished, there was a reverence for God's truth. The loyal followers of Christ meeting their kindred 
believers in faith would say, Christos Bostris, and would reply, Bostris Bostisu. In all these expressions, in all these various nationalities, always being interpreted in English would be, Christ the Lord is risen, and the response would be, Christ the Lord is risen indeed. In our country, however, we say Happy Easter. Forgetting, we oftentimes forget that the word Easter may have no connection with the open grave and in no way testifies to the resurrection miracle. We've um, sometimes represented the um, Easter faith by the fertility bunnies. And my cross today to my left kind of represents, um, I was given that by a very spiritual, very spiritual person, one of my great spiritual mentors, that we kind of combine, and not that we're going to take away from the cross, because the greatest act of the resurrection was that Jesus was born, he ministered, he shared uh, a tremendous method and method of life and methodology in life, and exemplified what truly being a God follower would be. And we are called Christus. Christus, little Christians, little followers of Jesus Christ, because we bear the cross. Because the Savior's triumph over the tomb, together with the crucifixion which preceded it, are one of the most blessed, blessed of all truths. And Christians should follow that angel, the angel's command, go quickly, go quickly and tell his disciples. Instead of limiting their Easter conversations to the subjects of new clothes. One of the, um, I think the um, facts of what is going on in the world right now is that they're probably thinking little of new clothes or spring hats or festive food or holiday programs or post-Lenten parties which have been the case among even the worldly and the church. But we ask you, who are the Lords? Who are the Lords to help inaugurate and maintain this Christ-exalting movement by which believers in Christ and all churches greet one another on this day with this salutation, Christ, Christ is risen. And the response is, Christ is risen indeed. Now, on that first Easter, only a very few followers of the Savior could sound that triumphant note. But on this Easter, this Easter of 2020, when over thousands of stations throughout the world, they are bringing Christ, Christ to the nations. Broadcasting system, millions are, can hear the message of our Lord's victory over death, multitudes, should heed the plea to keep Jesus, to keep Jesus in Easter by greeting one another and heeding the plea as we meet one another before the close of this day with a faith-born, it's a faith-born declaration, Christ. Christ is risen and Christ is risen indeed. I don't know what you've been doing the last few days, but my life has been much more complicated. It's much been longer, but I still kind of insist on a little exercise, an outdoor exercise. I've never run into so many of my neighbors lately, and I've been saying, you know, on Good Friday, I was saying, have a good Friday, have a good Friday. And just yesterday, I was saying to some of the walkers that I'd meet, and we could try to maintain that, that eight to ten feet distance, I would say, Christ the Lord is risen. And, and some people were a little puzzled. And then I said, your response is, Christ the Lord is risen indeed. And I'd say, let's try it again. Christ the Lord is risen. And they would respond by saying, Christ the Lord is risen indeed. By giving us this Easter greeting, everyone whom we meet before the close of this day with this faith-born declaration that Christ is risen, may God give every one of you the resolution resolution and resolution to proclaim that he, Jesus Christ, is risen indeed. Well, to strengthen our 
faith in the resurrection reality. Let us, and I include especially, I talked with a number of people yesterday by way of telephone that were not believers. It was interesting, you know, I had a number of messages by individuals um, by way of um, television and radio that they called into our office and they were wondering what we were going to be doing by, um, for Easter service. And I had offered suggestions. We even tried to get an F, FM radio station frequency so that we could have kind of a drive-in in the parking lot, but we still had to maintain that 8 to 10 feet of social distancing. But I include today especially the doubtful. I include you by way of radio and by way of television today, those who are doubtful and uncertain, even the scoffers and even the atheists in this, this audience. We would stand once more in spirit before this rock-hewn grave in Joseph's garden where the broken seal, the removed stone, the prostate Roman guard, the empty tomb, the discarded burial shroud, the white-robed angel with his announcement, he is not here. He is not here. He has risen. Matthew chapter 28, verse 6. All of this combines to impress upon us with the holy, the heavenly truth that Jesus, Jesus, God's Son and the world's Savior, has eternally, eternally defeated death for himself and for all others who claim to be followers of him and adhere to his truths. With that Easter cry, Christ is risen. Christ, Jesus, is risen indeed. We invite you, rather, we urgently plead with you to, to study, to study and to believe the inspired resurrection witness St. Paul wrote to the Roman church, a very decadent, a very decadent church, a very decadent society, the Romans. And St. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, 4, he says, as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of God the Father, even so we also should be able to walk in this newness, this newness of life. And by the Spirit's guidance to find the Easter truth the resurrection message, the Easter and resurrection newness. You may ask, what is this Easter truth? Well, when the apostles summarized the triumph of the sacred day in the short seven-word statement, he says, Christ. Christ was raised up from the dead. And he regards the mysterious but magnificent bursting of the grave as a very unquestionable supreme truth that the entire New Testament record, the resurrection victory, is never debated. No lengthy defenses of its facts are offered. No attempts are made to vindicate the details of the Easter earthquakes and the narratives. Throughout the scriptures and the early church declaration that on the third day he rose again from the dead, is uncompromisingly accepted as the great finale, the great climax truth of all faith, the necessary keystone in the arch, in the arc of our truth and our hope. No resurrection, no redemption, no open grave, no open heaven, no risen Christ, no risen Christians. This is the unavoidable Alternative, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 through 18, that if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ have all perished, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 through 18. I always hesitate reading that scripture. That's not a real highlight scripture. But yet, as Paul triumphed, he says, now is Christ risen. So I want your faith to ring clear. I want your faith to ring unhesitantly. Some of you doubt, but you need to pray and say, Lord, help my unbelief. 
I believe, but help my unbelief. Some of you doubt or deny the angelic presence and proclamation that he has risen because you have never taken the time to behold the Easter, the Easter message of the evangel with your open eyes. You, you've had your mind poisoned by a, a very maybe destructive teacher in college or, or high school, an atheist a agitator or some applauded skeptic. Will you not be fair enough to read the New Testament evidence for the Savior's restoration to life? If you submit to the Spirit's guidance, and you need, every Sunday as I approach the altar, I lay my hands on the altar and I say, may people not see Randy Tabor, but may they see Christ in me, the hope of glory. I say, not me, O Lord, but you, O Lord. And every time I look into the camera or, or share in the radio, I say, Lord, take away, take away myself and put Jesus. Not by my power nor my might, but by the Spirit of God. If you submit to the Scripture's guidance, you will experience the same startling reverse that challenged the life of many. I worked with a gentleman who was quite well known, a Dr. Charlie Greer, Northern Minnesota, I only met him when I went up there. He had um, retired from the ministry, and in retirement he wanted to stay in the area, and because of the protocol among all churches, it's not only the certain denominations, but all denominations suggest that once you retire from a congregation, um, it's not like you should um, ever come back, but I mean there should be a a waiting period and you should not contact your parishioners. You should not allow any contact from them to you and you to them. So he was kind of a, a minister without any church. And so I said, well, is there any probability that you could come and share Sunday school? And, and he went on to share Sunday school, not only during my period of 10 years up there, but for nearly 30 years, 20 some years after my, I left. And he still preached. He still came to a Sunday school class. He, he um, um, wrote commentaries in the book of Revelations. And still at 101 years old, his children made sure that he was in the Deer River United Methodist Church. He thought that he had found confusion early in life. He thought that he had found confusion and contradictions in the four gospel accounts. And his... His exposure, he boasted, would reveal the complete impossibility of the open grave. I heard his testimony on many occasions. I've read it in, in books. And when Dr. Greer, when he had finished his investigations, however, he had penned this remarkable confessions. He said, as I have studied the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and have weighed it according to the laws of evidence, I have become satisfied that Jesus really rose from the dead, as recorded in the Gospels. And, he's, and he's, as he concluded, he says, as he has written in many of his books, in the book that was supposedly to destroy the faith in the resurrection, he says, on that side, I have found myself. I have found myself on the side of Christ and the Christ of truth and life and way. More recently, we have witnessed a similar challenging. It seems like during the um, holy weeks, we have all kinds of books on the Passover plot and people that expend all kinds of energy trying to deny the existence of Christ. I mean, it's, it's really futile to deny his existence. I mean, there's more written about Jesus of Nazareth than there is about Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or many leaders in our country. They try to change our wavering dot to uh, convicted faith. Dr. Frank Morrison, acclaimed for his recent book on Pontius Pilate, tells us that when as a young man he began seriously, seriously to study Christ's life, he had the definite feeling that the New Testament scriptures rested on very insecure foundations. Higher critics that we learned in seminary would go out of their way to try to take the miracles out of the Bible and, and try to um, t 
take any masculine language out of the Bible, and that's where you find many of our preachers and many of our pulpits today, taught by agnostic professors. I had professors at the seminary I attended that didn't really necessarily claim to be Christians, but they just thought that it was such a good history, such a good, and I thought to myself, how in the world did they ever become professors? And when I was quite some time in the ministry, I met a number of ministers, a number of ministers that would not publicly acknowledge their disbelief in many parts of the Bible, but they thought that it was a good, um, good gig. One of them said that being a preacher might be a good gig. The few things that these destructionists, and I call them destructionists, left standing the physical science courses in which they were enrolled, which proceeded to undermine the credibility of the Bible. They had read, or had read Dr. Huxley's, Dr. Huxley's, and my undergraduate degree at the university was in philosophy, and I read a lot of Huxley's verbiage. And he tried to take away the deity of Christ, and he, um, his great sayings was miracles. Miracles did not happen. And it comes to the conclusion that the laws of the universe could never be suspended. He could not, however, entirely subdue a reverent regard for our Lord required during his childhood. And in order to find peace of mind, he decided to study the Savior's sufferings and resurrection. He proposed to strip the scriptural record of its overgrowth of primitive beliefs and dogmatic suppositions. He would see Jesus as he, he really was, not as the Christians believed him to be. And hardly, however, he plunged into this eternal word which his thoughts concerning Christ were revolutionizing. What he calls was the irreversible, irresistible logic of the gospel narrative gripped his heart. And he found that he could not write a book attacking, attacking the Savior's death and resurrection. Instead, he, he published a volume on the first Easter. The first Easter, a very reverent defense of Bible truth. You too will be able to overcome doubt and to exalt with the apostle when you start reading and meditating and asking for the Spirit's guidance in the Gospels. Christ was raised from the dead. If you prayerfully approach the Easter story asking for the Spirit's strength and light as you study its statements. But the trouble with most people who reject the, the Easter Gospel is not to be found in any insurmountable opposition by, by their brain, by their brain processes, but in their stubborn, their stubborn unwillingness to concede the truth. I'm reminded of just last night, late last night, I was watching um, Fox News and Jesse Waters, who talks about his world, his world, and interviewed a number of people. And about six out of the, the ten people he, um, he interviewed, he said, what do you know about Easter? Resurrection. Six of the ten people couldn't come up with anything. They talked about new clothing, and they talked about Easter eggs, and they talked about Hershey's chocolate. But they could not grasp what Easter was truly about. Now, in your world and in my world, we've probably had some religious education in some of these school development or supposedly some knowledge of the Bible and the resurrection. A brilliant New York attorney is quoted as admitting, I am convinced that Jesus really did rise from the dead, but I am no nearer to being a Christian than I was before. I have too much life to live. I thought that the difficulty was with my head, but he said, I find that it really is with my heart. Now you may be, even by way of television this day, or listening by way of radio, and you really are struggling with the fact of disbelief. You may be struggling with the fact of 
that your heart's not right with God or your head's not right. Sometimes you need to um, maybe disengage one in order to get one to believe and then one to get aboard and then both of them grow in your love. With every head bowed and every eye closed, we ask, O oh Lord, that there may be those by way of television that really need Christ. And as much as the resurrection is so tremendously important, we need to recognize the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was buried for our sins. With every head bowed and every eye closed, by way of radio and television, you need to ABCs of salvation. A is all of us have sinned and fallen short of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. And we need to be believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and confess Him as our Lord and Savior. If you could just repeat this prayer with me, dear Jesus, I acknowledge that I have sinned and fallen short of Your glory, and things that I have done and left undone, things that I have committed and things that I have omitted. Forgive my sins, O Lord. Come into my heart and life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And move this from my head and my mouth to my heart and actions. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we're just breaking, I believe. And um, Mike, you have a few thoughts. And do we... We'll give Mike a little leisure time. And I think we'll go to a next hymn, a hymn of Mike's... Mike's favor and preference. Second hymn. This hymn comes all the way from Wisconsin.
because they had a Roman seal on the tomb. That was a warning. Anyone that messed or broken that Roman seal was subject to death. But they were only able to do that after they neutralized the guard. The Romans were unknowingly prophetic about the disastrous nature with, for them of the Jesus resurrection story. The Romans protected the body from being stolen. And buried around us as he was dead and not alive. Consequently, the Romans performed everything they could think of to prevent that from happening. The Romans wanted to enhance the tomb security because people were worshiping Jesus. Back then in Rome, all the citizens and visitors were to worship one person, the Caesar, and him alone. Only Matthew mentioned an earthquake that followed the resurrection. I wonder how, how or why anyone would assume that means it didn't happen. Matthew was let alone by God to mention that earthquake. People never write the same exact event accounts. They all tell different stories of it. And they all have different details of the story they put together. Otherwise, what would the point be of the news interviewing more than one person for any given event? And why would more than one station of news cover different aspects of any single one event from multiple witnesses? It is because they all have different details to share and say. Matthew says that it was Lord that came down from heaven to roll away the tombstone. He did it himself in the form of the angel, angel of the Lord. In the Bible, angel of the Lord is written, it is really referring to Jesus himself. As I mentioned, tombstones were extremely heavy and set on an incline to prevent removal. Matthew also describes the physical appearance of Jesus when he did move the stone. The other Gospels do not cover that. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The tomb's guards were so shocked and terrified by that angelic scene, they passed out. After they got done shaking, they passed out and fainted, and became like dead men. In the Bible, the sight of the angel, or the Lord, is often frightening. You see, the, the sight of something so perfect and holy kind of shocks the brain and body. It shocks the system. We don't know what to make of it. The natural response to such supernatural awesome events is for the brain to freeze and fear because it cannot grasp or process it. But the first words on angels mouths usually are do not be afraid or fear not. They know that humans can't really handle up here their appearance. In Mark, the women entered the tomb. In Mark 16, 5, says the young man in a white robe was sitting on the right side of the slab that Jesus was laid on. Young, young man said to women, do not be amazed. You see Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter, because Jesus is going before you in Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Seeing the young man terrified the women. Now skip ahead to Luke 24, chapter, chapter verse 5. The women saw that the body of Jesus was missing, and there were two men, in clothes gleaming like lightning, standing by the tombstone. Both women were so afraid, they bowed down and put their faces to the ground. Here again, our human reaction to something so perfect and holy is kind of a shock. In Matthew and in Mark, the angel told the women not to be afraid and that Jesus was not there. The angel told the women to look at the empty place where Jesus was laying 
and see that he had risen. The angel of Luke told the women to go into Galilee with the disciple, and they will meet Jesus there. In Luke chapter 24, 24 verse 7, the angel told the ladies to remember what Jesus had told them. He had told them that they would be delivered in the hands of sinners, he would be crucified, and on the third day, rise again. After he heard this, it jogged away his memories, and he remembered that is what he told them. In John, Mary stood at the tomb crying over the slab that the Lord's body was laid. Two angels came out to her and asked her, Hey, why are you crying? She sobbed and said, They have taken my Lord, and I do not know where they put him. She turned away from them crying, and the Lord, unrecognized, was right next to her. He said to her, Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? She asked and said, If you have taken him, wherever you put him, I will get him. The angel said, Mary. And she recognized that angel as Jesus himself. She yelled, Teacher! And even more tears flowed from her eyes. Jesus told her that she should go and tell the disciples that he had returned from both their father and God. In verse 9, the women fled the tomb terrified because of seeing the angel, and they ran to the disciples to share their experience of the tomb. All four gospels say that women told, when the women told them about the empty tomb, tomb and angels, disciples, he didn't believe her. They thought she was making it up. It was nonsense. My apologies to the ladies, but culturally speaking, women back then in Jerusalem were not even allowed to testify in court because their gender, the courts doubted their, their credibility. For females, Mary and the other ladies, to be the first witnesses to come back and speak of an empty tomb, it's just one more example of God using human weaknesses as a strength and to show himself and for his purpose. Indeed, all things, even our own human faults, can work together for God's glory. In Matthew and Mark, the angel also told women to go to Galilee and tell the disciples that Jesus will meet them there. When they got there, he'll tell the disciples that what the lady said about the tomb was just as he said it was. In Matthew, the women ran away terrified and yet filled with joy. That's kind of oxymoronic, isn't it? <laughs> they, they wanted to tell the others that the angels directed them there. They were so shaken. They didn't tell anyone about their experience of the tomb until they met with the disciples. Also in Matthew, Jesus met the women on the way back from the tomb. The women were walking down the road to tell the disciples about what they experienced. And Jesus greeted them. They recognized him. And they fell at his feet to start worshiping. Jesus told them, just like the angel, do not be afraid. Go tell the disciples of Galilee. They reached the disciples in Luke. And after hearing what the women told them, Peter and the other disciple, John, ran to the tomb. They raced. Upon arriving, they saw the neatly folded clothes laying on the slab. Peter left the tomb, even more puzzled about what had happened there. John has a very brief discussion in his book about the empty tomb. It climaxes with Mary standing outside the tomb crying. She stooped down to look into the tomb. She saw two angels. One of the angels asked her why she was crying. Again, she said that she had taken her Lord, they had taken her Lord, and she was not aware of where they put him. She turned around and again, there was Jesus. He said, Mary. At that she cried, Teacher, 
fell down weeping and worshiping at his feet. In John 20, the lady told Peter and John. They both ran, they raced into the tomb to see what happened and to verify the women's story. We see that John was a faster runner, quicker, and he beat Peter to the tomb. John stood down and looked into the tomb. During both their speech in the tomb, they saw the neatly folded clothes laying on the slab. But the veil and the head covering were missing. He did not get it. When the impetuous Peter arrived, he went into the tomb. At that very moment, Peter believed everything was glory told him. The, Lord, the word says that after a tomb visit, they both simply went home. They all went to the tomb together after that. And after the visit, to see it, it was empty, they started on the road to Amaz. As they were walking out of the tomb, Jesus joined them, unrecognized, and asked them, what are you talking about? He listened to their explanation, and when they finished, he said, peace be with you. Then they recognized him. They were initially frightened because they thought they were seeing a ghost. In John's Gospel, he showed the marks of his hands and feet, and they were relieved because they were confident now that it was Jesus. With the exception of Luke's book, they still did not believe it was him because he died on the cross and then buried in the tomb. He asked them if they had anything to eat. And they handed him a piece of fish. He ate the fish in their presence. In Luke's book, the Lord says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and Psalms. They believed him. And John, the disciples, went back and told Dolly Thomas they had seen the risen Lord. Thomas said to him, you know what? No, I don't think so. Unless I can put my finger in the holes in his hands and feet. And it didn't happen. The next week they were locked up in a room in a house. And the Lord just appeared. Upon arrival, Jesus told Thomas, Dr. Thomas, Jesus walked up to him in the house and said, you know what? Put your fingers right here. And in my feet, you'll see that it is really me. Stop doubting and believe. The Lord says those last words. Because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who do not see me and yet believe. This means that all of us who have not seen are even more blessed than those who have. Thank you, Father God and Jesus Christ. You have risen and risen indeed. Happy Easter. Thank you, sir. Thank you. At this um, time, before we close, we're going to have a third hymn. A third hymn. <laughs>
Son at first Easter. You have safely brought us to the beginning of this day, this resurrected day. Defend us with your mighty power and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our goings and our doings be ordered by your governance. May we always be found in righteous relationship in your sight. May we, Father, look at the evidences of Christ's resurrection, how convincingly, however, the Easter evidence is when we both, the head and the heart, accept Christ. Now I pray that the grace and the peace and the love of God our Father Almighty would be with those by way of radio and television, that in spite of the circumstances of the last few weeks, months, that we would seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, with whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Happy Easter to one and all. And at this time, as we close out by way of radio and television, we're going to be preparing for next week's. And as the cameras are being shut down, our audience is going to be playing a, a number when the sound system and everything is taken care of. Thank you. Yes,